Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, Judges chapter 14, beginning at verse 1, and the character we're going to look at today is kind of a famous character, kind of a legendary character, and his feats of strength actually remind me of the world's strongest man competition. You ever seen that show? It's a pretty impressive show. I was looking up some of the events. Um, I don't think this is a current event, but it used to be you could watch it, and they would have a competition where a guy would literally carry two fridges across his back. He would have this big steel structure and have a fridge on each side. He would get underneath this steel apparatus and lift it up and have to carry it over 900 pounds through a course. Now, I cannot do that. That's amazing. Or another famous event that they have is that they will pull like a boxcar or a plane or a train or a bus or a semi, you know, trying to pull their way with a a harness and a rope, trying to pull these incredible vehicles. How many of you can do that? Well, some of the feats we're going to see today of Samson reminds us of the world's strongest man. And even though he's so strong, he actually has a lot of weakness. And so as we read our text today, see if you can figure out what is going on at the center of Samson's life and his heart. And by the way, every time that I mention the Spirit of the Lord, I'm going to ask you to stand. Or if you can't stand, at least raise your hand. And it's okay. This will keep you awake. Your Fitbit will like it. You know, you're getting some activity. So let's look at Judges chapter 14, verse 1. You can stay seated for now, okay? So it says, Samson went down to Timnah. And saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. So if you remember what's going on here, the Philistines are the main enemy of Israel right now. They are oppressing Israel. And we saw in chapter 13 that Samson has been anointed and chosen by God to be this leader who would deliver them from the Philistines. So if you look up here on the map, the, Philist- the area of Philistia is right over here. I know that laser pointer is hard to see, but there on the kind of southwest of the map is where that is. And Samson, most of the drama today takes place in this little green area where he went down to Timnah. So verse 3 says, His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. Literally, he's saying, she is right in my own eyes. I want her. Now, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. And it's it's not because Samson is marrying someone outside of his tribe. You know, some theologians have wrongly used texts like this to say that God is against interracial marriage. And that's not what's going on here. In fact, if you look earlier in our Bibles, Moses actually married a non-Israelite, and that was fine. But the issue here is that Samson is marrying someone who is not following the Lord. He's marrying the enemy who does not follow the God of the Bible. In fact, it calls the Philistines uncircumcised Philistines, meaning, if you know the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, God gave that sign to Abraham and his people because they were to be set apart for the Lord. They were to cut off sin, just like they cut off the flesh. They were to be separated for the Lord. And by Samson marrying this Philistine woman, this is going to cause a lot of problems. 
This goes against what Scripture says in, in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 in the New Testament. Paul will say, similarly, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? I mean, that word yoked is a strong word. It, it probably implies a lot of different kinds of relationships, but at the very least, it implies that we are not to marry a non-believer, someone who does not follow the same God that we serve. And so I would encourage you, if there's someone here today or you know someone that's dating or engaged to a non-believer and they claim to be a believer, I'm just here to tell you that that goes against God's word and it is not gonna work out. I've seen too many situations where even, even the non-believing spouse may say, you know what, I'm gonna respect their faith, I'm gonna let them practice their faith, but when you get married, it's like you're seeing through two different lenses. If one of you believes in the gospel and the other does not, it's gonna cause so much tension and friction in how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you raise your children. So already we see that Samson is violating this principle that he is not to be yoked together with an unbeliever, and this is gonna cause all sorts of problems. Let's go on to verse four. Judges 14, verse four. It says, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Now, this is an interesting comment, isn't it? Samson makes this horrible choice and yet scripture still says that who's in control? God. So even though Samson is responsible for this choice, he shouldn't make that choice. The narrator is still telling us that mysteriously, this is all from the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I get a little bit confused about that. But somehow, God's sovereignty and our responsibility mesh together, and Scripture is okay with that. Let's keep going. Verse 5, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward them, toward him. And you need to stand now because it says, go ahead and stand, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. So you can be seated now, okay? He tore a lion with his bare hands. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Now, this is unusual, right? This is like, this is not one of those competitions in the world's strongest man competitions. This, he just happens to meet a lion, and the spirit of the Lord empowers Samson. And I think that this happens because the narrator of this, Scripture is trying to show us that who is ultimately the source of Samson's strength? Is it Samson? No, it's, it's God. And then Samson's really quiet about this. I think he's quiet about this and doesn't tell anyone because if you remember back last week, Samson was called a Nazarite to the Lord. And that was a special vow that you could make in the Old Testament, a Nazarite vow. And as part of that vow, you were not to come in contact with a dead carcass or corpse of a human or an animal. So by ripping apart this animal with his bare hands, he has come in contact with a dead animal. And he would have been required to go through an eight-day purification process to be clean again. So I don't think he wants to do that. So sadly, he doesn't tell anyone about this. Verse 8 Keep going. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, this Philistine woman, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it, he saw a what? A swarm of bees and some honey. Now, pause. Have you ever seen bees making their nest 
and a rotting animal carcass? Me neither. This is unusual, to say the least. Verse 9 says, He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate it as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it. But he, again, he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now, why is this little bit of information even mentioned in Scripture? And in some ways, let me tell you, I don't know. But let me give you my best guess. Because again, Samson's coming in contact with a what? A dead corpse. And based on his Nazarite vow, he was not supposed to touch a dead corpse. And he knew that as part of his vow to the Lord. And yet he did it anyway because, again, he is seeing something he wants. He saw a Philistine woman he wants. I'm going to have her, he says. And now he sees some honey, even though it's in a dead carcass. It's troubling to think about. And wants it anyway. And he also gives some to his father and mother. So I think the narrator of our text is telling us that Samson is a man who sees what he wants, and he takes it, much to the problem of Israel and his own character. Let's keep going on in verse 10. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast, probably a wedding feast, we think, as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. I think this is probably 30 Philistines, their enemies, to kind of be like his bodyguards and keep an eye on Samson. Verse 12, let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within the seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. And if you can't tell me this answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. So Samson makes a bet. I have a riddle for you. Let's play a game. If I win, I get 30 sets of linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you win, you get the same. And that may not seem like a big deal to us because we just go to Walmart or Kohl's or Amazon and order stuff online anymore. It's not a big deal. But it was a big deal back then. For people who didn't own very much clothing, it was hard to make. Clothing was expensive. And here's the riddle. It says in verse 14, he replied... Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And for three days, they could not give the answer. By the way, leave that up there on screen for a second. Do you know the answer to the riddle? Go ahead and turn to your neighbor. See if you can solve the riddle in 10 seconds or less, okay? This isn't too complicated, all right? So on your marks, get set, go. Don't think too hard. Some of you look perplexed, or maybe not awake. Maybe that's what that look is, I see. All right. So what is the eater and the strong? What is that referring to? Anyone know? You can shout it out. The lion. How many got that right? Whew. All right. I won't ask you if you got it wrong. Um, and then something to eat and something sweet. What is that? The honey. So he's talking about that episode where he killed the lion and he took and scooped honey out of the line. Now, there's no way they could know this, right? <laughs> it's a pretty unusual riddle. And it says, for three days, they could not give the answer. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me. 
you don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Boy, if this is a wedding celebration, it's quite the wedding celebration, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and he says, I haven't even explained it to my father or mother. So why should I explain it to you? I mean, Samson is a man, for the most part, who's been keeping secrets. He killed a lion. He scooped out honey. I'm not going to tell you the riddle, he says. And in verse 17, she cried the whole seven days of the feast. Man. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. And before sunset on the seventh day, so at the last hour, basically, the men of the town said to him, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not have solved my riddle. <laughs> now, who's his heifer? Who's he talking about? His wife. Men, don't call your wife a heifer. Don't do that. <laughs> but that's what he calls her. <laughs> Verse 19, you need to stand again because the spirit of the Lord comes. Okay, so stand up. Then the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, that's Philistine territory, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. So you may be seated. We're going to keep reading chapter 15 in a moment, but I want to pause just for a second. Um, it, doesn't take, it doesn't take a biblical expert to see that Samson is a very flawed character, isn't he? <laughs> He's not really living up to his calling in chapter 13 to be set apart for the Lord, to live for the Lord, to do things that honor the Lord. And yet, the spirit of the Lord comes on him not once, but twice, and we're going to see him come on him again. So why does God choose very flawed people like Samson to lead and to deliver his people? Well, let me give you a couple educated guesses. Number one, just because God uses someone doesn't mean that God fully supports everything about him. Just because God uses someone for his purposes doesn't mean that he supports everything about him. Because think of your own life. When God uses you, does that mean that you're always perfect and doing everything that God wants you to do? Of course not. On our best days, our motives are often mixed. Well, God often uses people who don't deserve it. The second thing I will say too, then we'll keep reading, I think that God is so gracious that he uses flawed people to accomplish his salvation. God is so gracious that he uses flawed people like Samson, like Jephthah, like Gideon to accomplish his salvation because even now, even though this isn't the way that Samson should choose to be, God is using it to defeat the Philistines. He's already killed 30 of them, even though it's a very messed up way, for sure. It's been famously said that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. And that's what God is doing here. So let's keep going in chapter 15. It says, later on at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. So he wants to go visit his wife after he's calmed down, going to take some food and see her. Verse two though, I was so sure that you hated her, he said that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Now, I don't know what this says about the father-in-law, but it's like, I've already given her away. Take her more beautiful younger sister. 
Verse 3, Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and he caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs, which is impressive, by the way. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. So you see what's happening here? Samson is causing a lot of agricultural and economic destruction to the Philistines. And it's pretty clever. I mean, I don't know how you tie a fox's tails together, but very carefully. But if you have a fire with it and they're tied together, they're going to be zigging and zagging and, you know, causing fire basically everywhere. It's chaos. Verse 6, when the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and sadly, I would add, burned her and her father to death. Now, do you remember back in chapter 14, back with the riddle, the Philistines threatened Samson's wife and said, if you don't tell us this, the answer, we're going to burn you and your father's household to death. Well, sadly, it ends up happening for a different reason. Verse 7, Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and he slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. He laid low for a while after killing a, a bunch of Philistines. We don't know how many. Verse 9, the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. The people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We have come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, to do to him as he did to us. So you see what's happening here? The Philistines are mad that all of their grain, their crops burned up. So they're ready to start a war with Judah and with Israel. Verse 11, then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Edom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like a little kid, doesn't it? Yep. Verse 12, they said to him, we've come to tie you up and hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. Verse 13, agreed, they answered. We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. Now let me pause there for a moment. One thing that's really sad about all this is not just Samson's life, but also the Israelites' life. I mean, Samson has already defeated a lot of the Philistines. He started a war, basically, not for a good reason, but for his own selfish reasons. Instead of the Israelites coming to Samson and saying, you know what, be our leader, Let's get victory over these pesky Philistines. They don't want that. In fact, the picture we get is that they are very content with the way things are. Don't disturb the peace. You know, we're kind of content in our oppression and our slavery. One biblical writer says it's like they've, they've so accommodated to the culture around them that the enslavement that Israel's experiencing is not just militarily and politically, but they culturally are a lot like the Philistines, and they don't want to be separated from that anymore. They're very content in their oppression and slavery. Verse 14, as he approached Lehi, so as Samson approached them, the Philistines came toward him shouting, and you need to stand again. This is the third time, or raise your hand if you can't stand. It says, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. 
The ropes on his arms became like charred flax, and the bindings dropped from his hands. And stay standing for this verse too. Finding a fresh, what? Jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. You can be seated then. So again, he breaks his Nazarite vow. He's coming in contact with a dead corpse. Verse 16, then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them, literally heaps of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. By the way, when you look at that verse, who is he giving credit to for this victory? Himself. Keep that in mind. Verse 17, when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramoth Lehi, which means jawbone hill. And because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, you have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. So the spring was called En-Hakor, that means caller spring, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now you'll notice it doesn't say he gave them victory necessarily, but he led them during the days of the Philistines. Okay. It's a lot of verses, isn't it? So, think about Samson. What is his main problem, would you say? At the heart, at the root of his issues, what's his problem? And we all said, self. Good. I thought you might say sin, which is true, but technically, it's self. His main problem is he is all about Samson. There's one being in Samson's world, and it's him. The second problem he has, too, and I think it's related, is he has accommodated to the culture around him way too much. He and the Israelites are way too content to be like the Philistines, to do what they do, to even marry into the Philistines who don't follow the Lord. And really, you can put those two things together, self and culture. Because I think, kind of like our day today, what does our culture tell you in your life? Who is the number one person in your life according to our culture? It's you. You do you. You be all about you. Follow your heart, right? As if that's, as if that's the ultimate determining stick in your life. Follow your heart. Don't let anyone else tell you what to do. At the end of the day, you be you. Well, let me tell you, that's horrible advice. It really is. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and deceptive. It's wicked. We can't trust always our own heart and desires. Samson's problem is he is all about himself. You know, if you are the number one thing in your life, did you realize it's going to cause that kind of chaos and destruction just like Samson experienced? I mean, yes, the Lord used him in kind of a roundabout way to defeat the Philistines, but if you are all about you, it's going to be hard for you to make friends. It's going to be hard for you to, to stay married. I mean, if two people go into a marriage thinking that marriage is all about themselves, they're going to be in for a rude awakening. It's not going to work. Even in your job or on a sports team, if you're all about you, if you are the number one being in your life, boy, it's going to cause chaos, destruction, fire that we saw in Samson's life. It is so hard today not to be all about ourselves. So how do we actually get freedom from ourselves? 
How do we get freedom? Unlike Samson, how do we actually experience the freedom that God is calling us to have? Well, three quick points, and then we're going to continue this next week too. Number one, how do we get freedom from ourselves? We need to engage in Christian community. Read it with me. Engage in Christian community. In other words, there's no such thing as being a Lone Ranger Christian. When God saves us, he saves us to himself, but he also saves us to one another. So what I want you to do again, like we did earlier, go ahead and look around again. Look behind you. Look above you. Look below you. When you are saved, you are saved into a relationship with all sorts of believers, whether you like them or not. That's your family. And we need each other. We, you need someone in your life that can encourage you, but also can call out when things are not going well. I mean, Samson, we don't get the sense that he had a lot of those kind of people. He had his parents, but he was ignoring them. He certainly was ignoring God. But do you have someone in your life that can speak hard truth to you, and will you actually listen when they do it? This is why it's so important not just to come to church or be a part of a church, but to get connected in a Sunday school class or a small group or get together with a group of believers over coffee. It's always over coffee, right? To study the Bible and encourage one another and challenge one another. And if you don't have that person, I would encourage you, pray for them. Pray that God would open the door that you can really get to know someone. The second way we get freedom from ourselves is not to just engage in Christian community, but to make sure our inner life matches our outer lives. Read it with me. Make sure your inner life matches your outer life. Because if you look at Samson's life from the outside, pretty impressive. He killed a lion with his bare hands. He killed 30 men, took their clothes. He killed over 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. I mean, that's very crazy. <laughs> from the outside, it looks like, wow, this guy's doing some amazing things. But we know on the inside that it doesn't match what's happening on the outside. We know on the inside that Samson's all about himself. Even at the end of chapter 15, when he's praying for water to come from the rock, it really is to satisfy his own desires again. One theologian said it like this, if you put this in slightly different language, um, one biblical scholar says that Samson has spiritual gifts on the outside, but he lacks spiritual fruit on the inside. He has the spiritual gifting, but not the spiritual fruit to keep up with it. You know, over the last several years, we've seen several impressive evangelical leaders who are doing so well on the outside fall. And I think it's because their inner life did not match their outer public life. They've abused their power. They are involved in a sexual scandal or a financial abuse. And it's sad because their inner life did not match their outer life. You know, many people look at their spiritual gifts as proof that they are fine spiritually. You know, look at the people I serve. Look at the impact I'm having. You know, surely God is pleased with me, but we must not mistake the operation of gifts for the growth of fruit. The real fruit in our life is the fruit of the Spirit. And then lastly, finally, if we're going to get freedom from ourselves, we have to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on whom? On Jesus Christ. And I would add every single day. We need to take our eyes off ourselves and put it on Jesus. And some of you may say, well, 
duh, that's true. (laughs) But this is why we engage in our spiritual disciplines of reading God's word, of being in Christian community, of praying, because that is an opportunity to take our eyes off ourselves and what we want and how life's about us and to put it on Jesus Christ, one way more glorious, one way more amazing than you and I. We need to take our eyes off ourselves daily. The Bible calls us to taste and see that God is good, to feast on him, to take in Jesus daily as we would take in food because we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the living God. In fact, Psalm 19 says it like this. Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. How many of you need to be refreshed this morning in your soul? Well, scripture says, look no further than the word of God. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. How many of you want joy today? Well, it says, go to the precepts of the Lord. They are much more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey. Didn't we see honey in our text today? Samson wanted literal honey, but if you want the real honey, Scripture says, look at God's word. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. You know, I was thinking, it's really difficult to figure out that you're a selfish person, isn't it? Everyone else may know it around you, but you don't necessarily know it. Like, you can't see it. How do you know that life is all about you? Well, let me give you a couple clues. How do you react when somebody offends you? When somebody takes advantage of you, looks at you funny? How do you react? If life is all about you, chances are you're going to be deeply offended You're going to let them have it. You're going to ignore them. You're going to be quick to be offended and quick to rush to judgment. But if life is all about Jesus, then you're going to show some grace, just like Jesus showed you grace. You're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're not going to rush to judgment. Chances are, if you react poorly when someone offends you or fails you, chances are life is about you because they've offended not just you, they've offended your God, which is you. Or how do you react when somebody criticizes you? You ever been criticized before? Well, if you react poorly, either you blow up or you get so down in the dumps you can't function. Chances are, if you react either of those two ways, then life is all about you because they haven't just offended you so that you can move on. They've offended your God, which is you. A person who has Jesus at the center of their life can take real criticism. Yes, it can hurt them, but it doesn't devastate them because they've been humbled by the gospel. They realize they need help and they've been affirmed by the gospel because they realize that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords loves them so much that nothing can ultimately touch them. Amen. So how do you deal with that? Or when life gets hard, what does your heart show? Chances are, if you're going through suffering this morning, if it causes you to cling closer to Jesus, that means that you have a heart that wants to know Jesus more. But if you're whining and complaining, and I'm not trying to belittle your suffering by any means, chances are that life has been all about you. So as we close our time today, we need to feast on Jesus Christ every single day. He invites us to taste and see that he is good. Because after all, unlike Samson, Jesus always had the best motivations. He never did anything because he had a personal vendetta against someone, no. He did it for the right reasons, because his father wanted him to. 
and even Samson who killed people to get revenge. You know what Jesus did? He didn't get revenge. Instead, he hung on a cross. And as he was hanging on a cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, when you feast on a being like that every single day and you're reminded of who Jesus is, that takes your eyes off yourself so you can live life the way you're meant to live it, to glorify him, to have godly friendships, to have a godly marriage, to work to the glory of God, to really enjoy life abundantly as God has called us to in him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see if we have made life about me, myself, and I, Lord, break us of that. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. And if we have, we just confess it to you. Lord, you encourage us to confess our sins to you. You are faithful and just. You will forgive us because of your grace. And Lord, help us to take our eyes off us and put them on Jesus every day. Lord, I can imagine, boy, what a change that would be in all of our lives if we constantly kept our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Lord, that would change us from the inside out all the time. And so, Father, equip us by your spirit not to be like a Samson, but to put our eyes on Jesus, we pray. Father, we commit these things to you in the mighty name of Jesus.